Welcome to the Storyform Podcast, where we journey together at the intersection of faith and story. I'm your host, Will Chenault, Soul Care Pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Jackson, Tennessee. Thanks for joining us on this podcast. Let's get this conversation started. Well, we welcome you to the Storyform Podcast. I am here with my trusty co-host, Tori Wilkerson. Tori, trusty co-host. I, I, I love that. that. Kinda, I think it's a lie. <laughs> kind of sounds like a, a, you know, Lone Ranger and Tonto or something. I like it. Yeah. You know, I've showed up three times now and I realize we've done mental health in the church. And then we talked with Eugene. Yes. And now we have a mental health professional today. And I'm beginning to think these are all interventions of some kind and I'm not smart enough to catch on. <laughs> Like that, that's why I brought you here. I know, but I just, it, I just figured it out right now and I'm leaving. Yeah, so we're going to build and ultimately the payoff is going to be after several more, we're going to do a live intervention. So there, it's like a reality podcast where yes. I don't know what's happening to me. Yes. That's a great okay. idea. Okay. All right. Log I figured it out way. though. I'm smarter than you thought. <laughs> we have a expert and a guest, uh, today that I'm really, really excited about. We have Will Beyer here with us. And let me tell you a little bit about his credentials, and then we'll hear from him. Uh, Will is a licensed professional counselor. Uh, He's a senior licensed psychological examiner, um, and he is the owner of Beyer Psychology Group. Will, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Um, I ask Will to come on this podcast because he really is an expert in ADD, ADHD. He's written uh, significant books on on the subject. And so um, I wanted him to come on the podcast to talk about this topic that affects a vast majority of people, but there's still a lot of question marks about how we understand uh, what exactly is ADD and ADHD? So, Will, before we define the terms of this, just start by what what moved you to become an expert in this particular realm of mental health? Uh, well, I guess without getting too personal, but I guess I'll have to. Uh, oldest son, uh, around age six, seven years of age, began displaying some behaviors that uh, included uh, significant impulse control problems that was there, emotional ability, um, concentration problems in the classroom that was affecting him. So um, I already had at that time a master's in psychology and in uh, mental health. And I thought, well, surely I can figure all this out and so forth. And uh, after a lot of research and uh, a lot of prayers and, and consulting colleagues and so forth, realized that he had a diagnosis of, of ADHD. And uh, so, you know, I guess as a parent, um, when you find out your child has something that uh, you know, like that, you want to learn everything you can about it that's there. So I set out to kind of make it my, my goal to acquire as much information as I could and read every book I could find, every research article I could find, and talked to every professional that I could find about the disorder. And from that, um, found in my practice, I had a lot of other individuals started coming to me uh, and kind of built my practice around working with ADHD, ODD, um, conduct disorder, just disorders of childhood in particular. I even now see like kids with autism spectrum and things. But uh, kind of, it just kind of fell in my lap, really. And so it started as a personal thing with it your did. son trying to yeah. understand. How long ago was that? 
Oh wow! Uh, gosh, uh, I guess he was born in uh, eighty four. Okay, so, yeah, That's quite so, a while. Yeah, yeah. So probably not a lot uh, of of research at that point in time, but it sent you on a quest to learn about this and 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 really uh, become an expert. Uh, in this subject. Yeah, you know, ADC is not a new disorder. We tend to think of it as something that kind of came out of the 80s. And um, a Canadian psychologist, Virginia Douglas, I think in the early 80s, coined the term attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and it sort of stuck. But prior to that, if we look back in the research literature, we can go back to 1904. There was a physician, Dr. George Steele, who described a population of children that he'd studied in his practice that he said had a predilection towards alcoholism, uh, poor impulse control or behavioral disinhibition problems, lawlessness, restlessness that was there. And he viewed it as, as having strong genetic propensity that's there, ran in families and things. So it was there. We see terms utilized, you know, in the research literature, we would find um, associated with, with inattention or impulsivity birth trauma, children who were born premature, children who were exposed to toxins in birth, mothers who smoked, uh, fetal alcohol or alcohol-related neurodevelopmental disorder. We'd see these same sequelae of symptoms that were there. So uh, from there came the term minimum brain damage. And then in the 50s, minimal brain dysfunction became the term. And finally, they kind of settled on attention deficit hyperactivity disorder in the, in the 80s, they had two subtypes. So you had the ADHD and ADD that mm-hmm. was there. Mm-hmm. They should have left it like that mm-hmm. because they're two very, very different disorders. Talk about that. What's the difference? Yeah, yeah the first one is really a disorder of, of behavioral disinhibition. So, um, you know, our brain operates on excitation and inhibition, so gas and brakes. Okay. And for the children with ADHD or adults, that neural break is not doing what it needs to be doing. So we think of that as executive functioning, to mm-hmm. stop, to delay to wait, to uh, reason through things, to sequence things, to internalize speech uh, so that you anticipate what's going to happen next. So we kind of think of it as prospective functioning, looking ahead in the future, what will happen if I say or do this? Mm -hmm. And children with ADHD or adults don't do that very well. Mm -hmm. And likewise, uh, retrospective functioning, hindsight. So looking backwards and learning from past experiences and things and using that information and delaying gratification and tolerating frustration. So all those things characterize ADHD and and set in motion really uh, a sequelae of behaviors that over time can get worse, that can interfere with educational attainment, family functioning, social relationships, and ultimately lead to an escalating diagnosis like of ODD or conduct disorder, addictive illness, things along those lines. In, in, in opposite of that, the, the inattentive type ADHD child, um, again, now it's called ADHD predominantly inattentive type, really has problems with working memory, with processing speed that's there. Um, you know, they probably have a true attention deficit in terms of, <clears throat> excuse me, difficulty uh, being able to kind of sustain attention to a task, a freedom from distractibility that's there. Um, and, and you can measure that. And, you know, you can actually find objective measures on an IQ test like working memory and processing speed and contrast that to verbal or nonverbal reasoning and see uh, objective measures of that, that difficulty that's there. And those kids are not disruptive. They actually tend to be more introverted. They tend to be more anxious as a part of that. Mm-hmm. So anxiety disorders sort of overlap. But the first one is the one that probably creates most of the duress in families. Because mm-hmm. um, if you can't 
stop and suppress your emotions, self-calm, self-soothe, tolerate frustration, then you're going to have social conflict and emotional conflicts that's there. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you can't defer gratification, you're much more inclined towards behaviors that are stimulus-seeking that's there. And for that population, we see a lot of comorbidities. An example is many of them start vaping or smoking at a young age. Use of alcohol, it starts at a young age. Uh, We see sexual promiscuity begin at a young age. And all these things then form a sequence that that push this individual into more antisocial personality kind of features over time. Um, The intervention process is is essential because if we can catch this early enough, we can educate family members, we can use research-based interventions, then we minimize and reduce those risks and we have great outcomes and things. Mm -hmm. It's when it typically goes undiagnosed, untreated, that things kind of fall apart. Mm -hmm. So we would say just in layman's terms, just some working terms of ADHD would be more of something that would see we would see visibly in behavior in Absolutely. actions yeah. in lack of yeah. uh, impulse control in um, you can see more, those kids in the classroom yeah. they're they're disruptive yeah. they get referred to the office too mm-hmm. more often mm-hmm. more phone calls home to parents about you know Johnny's not paying attention he's not he's he's bothering the other kids he can't keep his hands to himself you know he's not finishing his work and things such as that. Mm-hmm. Um, the the child with ADHD combined type or hyperactive impulsive type, you know, just tends to be very stimulus seeking okay. as a part of that. Yeah. Um, and the explanation for it is goes back to the kind of the neurochemicals associated with this disorder. So mm-hmm. we think of dopamine as a neurotransmitter associated with pleasure, with mm-hmm. reward, mm-hmm. with um, with with motivation, with movement. Um, with memory, all those types of things. And when dopamine levels are in lower supply in that prefrontal part of the cortex that's there, we see executive functioning is diminished that's mm-hmm. there. So executive functioning is planning, uh, sequencing tasks, organizing. And again, also the prefrontal part has to suppress the limbic region. So mm-hmm. the limbic region is that part that governs our emotions that's there. Um, we get frustrated. Do we suppress it? Do we do we talk to ourselves and calm ourselves down mm-hmm. and things? Uh, kids with ADHD and adults alike struggle with that greatly to be able to kind of suppress those emotions and not let them get out of hand and mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so what sounds like you know a simple problem of paying attention is actually far far more than that, mm-hmm. and it's not just a matter of being alert and being attentive. Uh, or sustaining attention to a task, but it really is probably the impulse control problem that that leads to the the greater you know mm-hmm. cost uh, mm-hmm. towards it to the individual. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, and so could you describe, give us a picture of um, what does it feel like for somebody with ADHD? If you were to paint, y- mm-hmm. you you tell me if this is a helpful. Um, just in your expertise, I heard this uh, illustration that you're in this crowded room and everybody's talking and the person next to you says, did you hear what they said? And and you can't hear what the person's saying because everybody is talking. Another example would be your, your car stalls out in the middle of the intersection and everybody is honking at you and you don't know what to do and you don't know how to get the the car going and out of the intersection is 
would that be an accurate portrayal of what it feels like? Attention is a construct that's difficult to define and even more difficult to measure, per se, that's there. Uh, we can measure divided attention, sustaining attention to task, and so forth. You'll hear those kind of comments by individuals with ADHD. You know, they may say things like, my mind's going 90 miles an hour. I can't seem to shut it off, even for sleep at night. You know, I, I can't sleep. Many kids with ADHD don't get enough sleep because they can't seem to calm themselves down And with that that's there. Um, they, the general restlessness, the fidgetiness that, that's a part of this can be a, uh, with that. Um, filtering out um, background noises probably is more the inattentive type ADD than in the other. Mm-hmm. Um, people with ADC will oftentimes say, I can't seem to get anything done. I'm always busy. You know, I start 50 tasks a day, but I don't finish any of them. Mm-hmm. So, um, tasks that they find tedious or boring are especially challenging. Mm-hmm. So if it's something that's rewarding, gives you intrinsic motivation, that's there you enjoy doing, you know, for a child, that could be playing video games. You know, do that for hours. Well, there's no attention deficit that's there. So the attention deficit is sort of a, sort of a misnomer that's there. It really is more... Uh, situationally and contextually specific when there's something that where I can't sustain attention to a task because I just don't like it. It's boring and and again, it's too too demanding. That's when they give up about 50% faster than other individuals mm-hmm. that's there. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, sometimes individuals with ADHD can hyper-focus, meaning that they'll say, I work better under pressure. Um, you know, at the last minute when the pressure's on, I can get the job done and things such as that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so you'll see that some. Right. Um, right. Tori, were you going to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say, I read a book and I can't remember the name of it to save my life. It was years ago, but it was about adults with ADHD and it was testimonials mm-hmm. of adults. You may know the book I'm referencing. Uh, there are several. Several. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it was just all of these people recounting Mm -hmm. what life felt like before they got treatment and what it was after. And I remember one specifically saying, I always knew I did not operate like other people, but I didn't know why until after I was treated. And I was like, this is what everybody else must feel like. There was a book that three ladies wrote uh, probably 15 years ago. And I was impressed by the title of the book. They met in a support group for adults with ADHD. And they started sharing their stories. They decided they to write a book. And they titled the book, I'm Not Lazy, Crazy, or Stupid. I Have ADHD. <sighs> and the reason they chose that title, they said, my entire life, I felt like everyone was always fussing at me. Why didn't you get this done? How could you forget doing that? You know, why did you put this off? Uh, and I was always apologizing, always trying to find a reason why I didn't get things done, and I, mm-hmm. I was capable. You know, there was no intellectual deficit, no cognitive deficit. It was a performance deficit, is that right. I could not sustain my attention and stay focused on those tasks that require that. And if we think about success in our society, to be goal-directed um, and to be able to sustain attention to tasks that is tedious, is you know, that, that plays a, a a primary role in uh, the level of success we acquire. If you want to be a physician, you got to take a lot of coursework. If you want to go into higher education, you have to take a lot of classes that just are boring and tedious, but they're required and that's there. If you want to build a business, you have to manage all the ins and outs of, of that business that's there. 
people with ADHD can be highly creative. They can be very, they can be brilliant. I, mean, I see, you know, gifted children with ADHD. But the difficulty is it's very selective in terms of what they pay attention to. Mm-hmm. So, Will, you would say the root causes of ADHD from your perspective, because I know this is, again, I, I've done limited, not nearly to the degree that you have, but just in over the years trying to have more of an awareness of this, it seems that the research is a little bit divided in, is this um, purely genetic, brain-oriented, uh, is it just um, environmental, mm-hmm. is it a combination mm-hmm. of the two? Yep. And so where would you land with that? When I think of, of evaluating for ADHD, I think of looking for the cluster of symptoms that's there that's inclusive in the disorder, but also ruling out other kinds of things that may mimic ADHD. Okay. You know, if I have a child that had significant birth trauma or has learning disabilities or has autism or OCD, you may see ADHD-like symptoms that's a part of that or comorbid with that, but it's not ADHD. So when I think of the etiology, the research lends itself towards genetics. It's there. Among identical twins, there's a 100% concordance rate. If one has it, the other one has it as well. That's there. Uh, among first-degree relatives and in, in family, if mom or dad, either one have it, there's about a 30% chance that, the, that, that their offspring will have ADHD. Uh, there are other things, though, that can certainly either worsen the disorder and or look a lot like the d- disorder, uh, in particular learning disabilities. You know, I see children with dyslexia or sp- specific learning disabilities in reading and so forth, and they may look that way, but, you know, the reason they're off task is that they can't read. You know, it's not about uh, ADD, it's about a reading problem. And you treat the reading problem, the attention problem goes away. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see kids sometimes who have experienced trauma, for example, same type of thing. Their, their, their uh, internalization of affect and, and, and mood affects their motivation. Childhood depression. If we talk to adults with depression, they'll frequently say, I can't concentrate. I can't stay focused. Um, you know, I can't remember things like I should and so forth. So depression itself can lead to that. Same thing with anxiety disorder. So there's a wealth of things that sometimes looks like ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, I see many adults that come in for seeking an evaluation for adult ADHD. And think, I've always felt like I've had this and so forth. In some cases, I find they've had multiple concussions. They have post-concussive syndrome. They've been in two or three car accidents or had athletic injuries, football injuries and concussions and things. It's not ADHD. So we view ADHD as a disorder that first should appear in early childhood. Probably between five to eight years of age, we should see the symptoms of this disorder present. If it's not there in childhood, but it starts later on, then we have to look to other ideological explanations for the disorder. It's, it's you know, it's probably it's not genetic. If mom or dad didn't have it or siblings don't have it, mm-hmm. and it's not in the family, then there's something else that's going on there. And that's where you have to look a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the problems I, I have a lot in terms of people talking about, is it overdiagnosed, is that too often we rely on simple rating scales as if they're diagnostic you know, tools, and they're not. So people may have, you know, gather the Vanderbilt ADHD rating scale by from the teacher and the parents and look at those symptoms and count them up and see if they match up with DSM-5 criteria. But by itself, all that does is say that the symptoms are present. It doesn't tell you if 
the the explanation, the ideology is in fact ADHD or for something else that's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, early in my career, I thought this was going to be a fairly simple diagnosis, and I found out it's not. Mm-hmm. It, it's pretty complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm assessing, I usually start with a very detailed clinical history that's there. We do want to get those parent and teacher observations. Uh, the interview sort of guides what assessment instruments we might use. In some cases, you know, we're going to do anxiety screens. We're going to look at depression. Uh, we may look at um, cognitive measures, working memory, mm-hmm. um, verbal reasoning. Individuals with lower intellectual functioning have the same collection of symptoms mm-hmm. as well and things. So mm-hmm. uh, it's a lot of things that can can mimic that and mm-hmm. things. I've had kids with it's remarkably young ages with substance abuse problems or alcohol abuse problems have the same type of thing. I've had kids with sleep disorders that was there. I've had kids with neural fibromatosis that's there that has, I've had kids with brain tumors and things. So, so when you start asking questions, there's a lot of ground to cover Mm -hmm. before you exclude all these other kinds of things that in fact rule out and say, it's really not ADHD. It's something else going on. Right. I know boys are more likely to have this diagnosis. Do mm-hmm. you are do you see that the um, symptoms among boys and girls are different? Do they um, does it tend to present different? I don't think it's all that different in the sense that if you have ADHD combined type, you still see restlessness, hyperactivity. You see impulse control problems. Um, you know you 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 find that um, you know. I mean, it still presents in a very similar way that's there. I do agree. I think boys are more likely to have it. And they're probably, boys tend to be a little bit more aggressive and things and the impulse control a little more overt. So consequently, it's probably diagnosed more in boys than in girls. Uh, Among the girls I see with, it probably is more the inattentive type. And we tend to see anxiety overlapping with that as well and things. That's that's very, very common. Mm -hmm. That helps me, Will, because um, just to hear you say the complexity of it, um, I recently read a book uh, by, I don't know if you've heard of a, a physician, is a Canadian physician by the name of Gabor Mate. Uh, he is a, an MD, um, but he was diagnosed as an adult with adult ADHD. Mm-hmm. And um, he wrote a book, it's an interesting title, the name of the book uh, is Scattered. Mm-hmm. How attention definite dis- title, disorder yeah. originates and what you can do about it. Yeah, and uh, so I read a, a few sentences of the opening of the book. He says attention deficit uh, deficit disorder is usually explained as a result of bad genes by those who believe in it, and as the product of bad parenting by those who don't. Mm-hmm. The aura and confusion and even acrimony that surrounds public debate about the condition discourages a reasoned discussion of how environment heredity might mutually affect the neuropsychology of children growing up in stressed families in a fragmented and highly pressured society and in a culture that seems more and more frenzied as we approach the turn of the millennium. Oh, that's great. I love that. Yeah. You know, it, and, and we do, you know, we, we always think of, of genetics and our environment shaping our behavior that's there. And clearly we live in a, in a, in a world in the United States that's very fast-paced, that demands uh, organization and attention. Um, you know, we do have to do a lot of things that just can't make any sense as to why we have to do those things that's there um, in terms of our career development. So we present children with a lot of situations that demand that they uh, focus and stay, you know, in complete tasks for which there is very poor 
correlation in terms of why they need to be doing that. Education's mm-hmm. slow to change. It exactly. Has been. Exactly. It's kind of like my kids asking me, when will I ever use algebra? Yeah. And oh, yeah. It, it, yeah. I say, well, unless yeah. you're going to be an engineer uh-huh. or a math teacher, probably not. Yeah. yeah. But it is a hoop that you have to jump, have through. To jump through. And um, some of those basic, you know, it, for I see a lot of kids with ADHD to kind of get through high school and they get into those general elective requirements and and you know they come home from college failing and it's there or the amount of just stimulation in college campuses distracts them so much they don't have mom or dad there to keep them on track anymore mm-hmm. so you know they can't mm-hmm. get the job done and and they end up partying too much and next thing you know they've kind of lost their education mm-hmm. talk about a little bit about our when you said the education system is kind of slow to catch up with what do you wish educators and administrators knew about ADHD and ADD? Well, you know, it's interesting, but in the 80s, I did hundreds of in-service trainings on ADHD. It was the hot topic all through the 80s that's there. And now it's kind of like we've just kind of put it on the sideline. We've kind of forgotten about it. It seems like the hot topic now is autism or things such as that or gender issues and so forth that's there. But, you know, ADHD has been around. It's still there. It's the single most accurate predictor of whether a child's going to achieve in school or not that's there. Um, so, you know, I think we need to get back where we're providing research-based information to our teachers. Um, you mentioned many people blame parents for, for this this problem or think they can fix it, you know. You know, parents will tell you, I, I get 15 notes a week coming home about, you know, you need to talk to your son about this. But ADC is a problem in doing what you know, not in knowing what you do. Most children with ADHD know the classroom rules. It doesn't mean that they follow them. Mm. They know the right things to do. They know what they have mm-hmm. to do or are supposed to do. But if their motivation is weak for the task, they don't complete it or they get distracted. It's mm-hmm. there. So uh, it's not a social skills deficit. It's not a lack of parenting. Um, many parents want to put their children in counseling you know, to try to address the ADHD situation that's there. But again, if it were a social skills deficit or knowledge problem, that would be valid. But the research tells us counseling plays a very minimal role in treating ADHD. It may help the child learn to self-calm, self-soothe, the emotional regulation aspect, you know, control aggression, um, how to you know, um, build and maintain social relationships and things. But it's, it's not about, you know, you don't make a child less impulsive by talking to them about trying to stop and think. And the reality is, you know, if they could do that, they would be doing it. Yeah, because it goes back to the executive functioning, uh, that there's right. just a limited capacity yeah. for that work. So when we, we think of how we treat ADHD, we think of a multidisciplinary approach, which would involve uh, first accurate diagnosis that's there. And then with that, uh, research tells us what works is a good home behavior management plan that's very structured, a routine, uh, access to, to rewards. Positive reinforcement is the primary um, tool that we'd use to shape behavior that's there. Many parents will say, you know, I've, I've spanked, I've taken things away, I've, I've done everything I know to do, and I'm at wit's end. You know, I've em- I had one of them tell me I'd emptied the entire bedroom of every toy, everything in there, but a mattress, you know, nothing works, you know. And, uh, but again, uh, reward cost, which is negative reinforcement or 
um, spanking or punishment does not effectively change the behavior of many of these children that's there. We, we tend to look at compliance training and positive reinforcement to do that. So, But a good home behavior management thing. In school, a 504 plan, if they're eligible for that, sometimes an IEP under the other health-impaired category, they can include a behavior plan, reasonable accommodations in the educational system, preferential seating, increased prompting and cueing of the behaviors that's there, um, you know, organizational assistance that's there. Any number of kind of things can, even small, you know, accommodations make a big difference that's there. Um, for the child, some counseling can be important. And the other aspect, and probably the one's most controversial, is medication mm-hmm. that's there. Mm-hmm. Uh, decision to use medication is, is not one that's based on, you know, it's not a life-threatening illness. It's not essential. Um, but it is one that the research says when it's used conservatively, judiciously, monitored appropriately, and so forth, it does make a difference mm-hmm. that's there. Mm-hmm. Uh, because... In effect, this is a problem with neurochemicals. It's a problem in terms of uh, inhibition failure. Um, you know, again, we think of, we look at neurotransmitters, we have dopamine, we have serotonin, we have acetylcholine, we have norepinephrine. All of them, to a certain degree, play a role with ADHD, but primarily dopamine. Because mm-hmm. what it does, it helps us to um, be appropriately alert, aroused, uh, attentive that's there. Um, again, and all the, all the symptoms that we sell with ADC get better with medication. So stimulant medications have been used for, um, you know, half a century or longer now and things. And that's going to be drugs like methylphenidate, Ritalin products. That could be uh, Concerta. It could be Daytrona, anything <clears> such <throat> as that. And then there's the D-amphetamine products, uh, more like Vyvanse, Adderall, and those mm-hmm. as such. So... Can you explain to me why someone who is um, needing or has good results medically with ADHD, why it is a stimulus or stimulant that that they are using? Yeah, yeah. So if we look at brain image scans, PET scans and SPECT scans of adults with ADHD, we would see diminished arousal in the prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. That part of the brain is very reliant upon dopamine that's there. So... Uh, as I said, dopamine plays a role in terms of keeping you alert and things. Um, so these medications are dopamine agonists or blockers of dopamine that's there. They slow the reuptake system down, one or the other that's there. And, and they do that, they bring the brain to a higher level of arousal. So if at the end of the day, if we have more work to do and we're tired and we can't seem to focus and get it done, we turn to coffee, uh, you know, or some kind of uh, caffeinated beverage that's there. Caffeine is a stimulant. It's a mild stimulant. It helps you work a little longer, tolerate frustration, and get your work done. Uh, every Ameri- only, you know, 80% of Americans use caffeine probably that's there. Um, it's no different. I mean, we're using a drug that's very, very similar to caffeine. It's not, contrary to what people think, like cocaine. It's not, you know, like methamphetamine. Um, generic Ritalin or methylphenidate products that's there use a time-released uh, mechanism or delivery system that allows this, this drug to be uh, metabolized over, uh, for generic Ritalin, three to four hours. For uh, Focalin, dexmethylphenidate, about six hours. For Concerta, maybe up to eight hours. And Daytron are the same type of thing. If we look at um, at Vyvanse or Adderall products uh, with Adderall XR, you get four hours and it runs out, and you get another four hours. It's there, so 
they're, they're slow delivery systems. No child on medication should look drugged. No child should look, you know, um, you shouldn't see any loss of, of affect, of um, excitability. You know, we want them to be children. We want them to laugh and enjoy, and you know, enjoy it. Their, their activities and things. Mm-hmm. So you should never see that. Mm-hmm. So the point is, if a little medication is good, more is not better. Mm-hmm. If you raise the dose up too high, you increase ba- basal ganglia effect, you'll get things like um, ticks, for example, facial ticks or motor ticks. You'll find that uh, the person will look constricted. They will not be moving at all. We've just kind of locked that neural break in place that's there uh, but when it wears off, you'll get a rebound effect. It'll go back and behaviors will be worse that's there. So if you use medication, and I think you can use it safely, conservatively, judiciously, you'll get benefits. Grades tend to improve. Social relationships improve. Family functioning improves. Self-control improves. And and probably if I were to redefine this disorder, it would not be as an attention disorder, but as a problem of self-control. Mm. And And medication improves that. But these medications have short half-lives, as we mentioned. So they're kind of in and out of the system. So if you use it during the school day, you may not have any use of it at home in the evening. It's there. Uh, I like, personally, to see children kind of have drug vacations. Uh, If they come off of it on Saturday or Sunday uh, or the weekend or over the summer, great, because it reduces tolerance to the medication and reduces side effects. They do have side effects. Appetite suppression, for example, is a very common side effect of stimulants. And then there are also second and third tier medications that can be used as well. So instead of the cycle stimulants, in some cases, uh, we may use something like Quelbri, which is a kind of new medication that is a norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. And uh, it just kind of improves your frustration tolerance and calms the child down a little bit. We may use anti or, or arousal modulating medications, antihypertensives. That could be drugs like clonidine, Cataprys brand name, Tenex, uh, Guamphacine, uh, Intuniv. Those are all uh, different varieties of, of medications that basically uh, are noradrenergic blockers. So what it tends to do is uh, um, it affects blood pressure, but in the same way, it kind of calms down. Um, kind of the emotional centers in the brain a little bit. Mm-hmm, too. Mm-hmm. I know as a mom and my experience with other mothers and as a counselor that medicating is highly controversial. Uh, there are a yeah. lot of moms who yeah. are like, I do not want to medicate. Yeah. But something that you wrote that I thought, man, if we all looked at it from this perspective, that it, it can be a preventative to addiction issues. Yeah. That's yeah. That kind of changes the yeah, perspective. I, I wrote a book back, uh, I guess, in the 90s called Born to be Wild, ADC, Alcoholism, and Addiction. And short version of the, of the book is there were two researchers in the 80s that were looking at whether there were forms of alcoholism that had high genetic penetrance. And they, they took a group of male alcoholics and did some genetic studies. And on chromosome 11, they found an A1 allele that 69% of that population carried versus 20% of the normal population. So that was the first kind of red flag that there may be some genetic variants. We've always known alcoholism runs in families. Plutarch said drunkards beget drunkards. That's there. Uh, we, we've seen certain populations that, that have this. Uh, sons of male alcoholics, more likely to be alcoholic. What we didn't know is, is this just learned behavior or is this some genetic propensity towards that? So in this research, um, it was uh, um, the the researchers 
was David Cummings, world-renowned geneticist, and Kenneth Bloom, who was um, similar in neurobiology, University of Texas Health Science Center. They did this study, and then they looked at other populations, looked at gambling addiction. They found the same genetic variants. They looked at sexual addiction, found the same thing. They looked at obesity, found the same thing. Uh, They looked at people who engaged in just risk-taking behaviors. They looked at cocaine addiction. They looked at heavy smokers. And in each of these subgroups, they found the same genetic variants that were there. So they coined a term called reward deficiency syndrome. And what they found was uh, these are individuals that when you look at this dopamine system that's there, they either had um, uh, fewer D2, D3 receptor sites that were there that required them to have a higher level of stimulus in order to feel normal. So what all these things have in, in, in common, whether it's nicotine, alcohol, cocaine, methamphetamine, sex, food, is their dopamine agonist. They raise dopamine. They feel good. They make you feel good. So, um, so with that came um, you know, the inclination. And they looked at adults with ADHD, and they found the same type of thing. And then the studies in uh, PET scans and SPEC scans by Dr. Daniel Amen came out, and they saw this prefrontal cortex that was under-aroused. So with children, what we're doing is medication, rather than increasing the risk for addictive illness, it's actually preventative. You know, what we find is sometimes children may be on medication. They get there in those teen years, and the hyperactivity kind of goes away, and the parent says, well, maybe they don't need this anymore, and they stop the medication. Next thing you know, the child's vaping. And the next, or they're smoking cigarettes, you know, or they're getting involved in alcohol or pornography and things such as that. Um, so all of these sort of um, things that can lead you into a world of trouble that's there tend to increase when medication is withdrawn. Uh, the research now tells us that uh, for those individuals appropriately diagnosed <clears throat> with the combined type ADHD, probably staying on medication even up to around age 30 can be helpful because that's when full adult maturation occurs. It's when we can finally start saying no to ourselves. that's there and deferring gratification. You know, as can we start <clears throat> looking at things from other people's perspective, not our own. We're less egocentric. We're less selfish that's there. And so um, I think medication, again, it's, it's a parent's decision. It's not the teacher's. It's not the doctor's. It's not, not mine. It's not, you know, it's, it, it's their child. They make that decision, but they want to make an informed decision. And then if they use it, the key is to monitor it and um, continue to obtain those rating scales and continue to communicate with the doctor so that you can, can manage it effectively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Will, let's shift just for a little bit about um, we've talked about causes and um, the understanding uh, more from a, um, a theoretical uh, perspective and, and brain understanding if we could shift to just more of the practical for families that are uh, experiencing, they have a child who has ADHD, what is the optimal, not perfect, but what is the optimal environment within the home mm-hmm. for someone who does ex- a child who has ADHD to yeah. thrive and so, feel safe yeah, and from yeah. an attachment perspective, feel yeah. secure? Yeah. 
Uh, well, let me kind of start with with what's what tends to happen, and sometimes why people come in to see me is yeah. that oftentimes parents feel like that this is a, a problem. My child being defiant and oppositional, so they increase the discipline. So they take more things away, they punish more, they spank more, until they finally reach a point where it's like it's just not working. They come in, they feel like I've tried everything in discipline. So we go back to these three basics: we have punishment, we have negative reinforcement, we have positive reinforcement. Punishment is a behavior followed by something that's painful, tends to be extinguished. We stop doing it. A child reaches out to grab something and you slap their hand and it's painful. They, we expect them not to reach for it again. Um, you know, same thing with, with spanking and so forth, taking away, you know, privileges and so forth. Negative reinforcement is withholding a reward until the behavior increases. So we're going to, you don't get to play your games until you do your homework. That's there. Uh, and the positive reinforcement is, uh, I'm going to give you a command. If you follow through and do what I tell you to do the first time without repeating it, then then you get something, something that's pleasurable. In an optimal situation, I want parents to focus primarily on that positive reinforcement, not on those, these other two. Because what will happen is parents can easily, children can elicit out of a parent a negative response. The child walks into the room and it's kind of like, like, can you be still? Can you just sit down? Can you stop doing that? You know, leave your sister alone. Stop bothering the dog. You know, have you done your homework yet? Uh, you know, have you cleaned your room? I feel like and, you're in my house. Are well, you just quoting all me? All that ultimately <laughs> leads to tension. It, it it destroys the relationship between the parent and the child. I mean, I see children sometimes that look like they have reactive attachment disorder. Mm. And the reason they do is they've lost that that close bond in relationship with the parent. Rather than seeking the parent's approval, what they're doing is kind of like, I like want to teach you a lesson and pay you back because you're just, you know, you're too harsh. There's too much correction going on in things that's there. Um, so in an optimal situation, the parent focuses upon shaping and training a child's behavior by giving commands and offering, being very liberal with the use of access of rewards and things. It's interesting. I, I do a lot, go to a lot of residential treatment programs. You know, we can't hit kids, you know, and things that's there. We we can't take away basic things. So what do we use? We use rewards. We use canteen. We use going to the gym. We use playing games. We use all those things to shape their behavior. But I've seen very hardened children and teens come in that you everyone's like, you know, we can't motivate them to do anything. But as soon as you entice them with some of these things, these reward activities, they, they fall in line. So using that, uh, Russell Barkley is probably the leading researcher and um, person development behavioral interventions for children with ADHD. And he uses what's called compliance training. And compliance training is is where you would say to your child, you know, go get me a glass of water out of the kitchen or go get me a book off the, of the bedside that's there. Not because you want the water or the book, but you're doing it to train the child. When they do, you come back, you give them a hug. You praise them. You may give them a piece of candy. You may play a game with them. But what you're doing is you're training that child is that when you obey, when you do what you're supposed to do, good things happen. Now, in, a, in, in an ideal family situation, you have token, you have point lists. So we're going to have a routine in the morning, a schedule to follow, one in the afternoon, one in the evening. And you'll probably have somewhere around 10 to 15 things on that list. And if they follow those things, they earn points. So we have what we call secondary reinforcers or a token system. And then from that, the child gets to select the types of rewards that they, they get. So they may decide to save up. And if I get 50 points, uh, I get to rent a movie, you know, or I get to 
to go to and go play a game or you'll do this with me that so we're, we're teaching the child that that good behaviors and performance leads to to good outcomes and mm-hmm. things so just to summarize it sounds like the positive reward system is the most effective for an adhd child just like it is with animals. I, I have a new new puppy at the house, you know, kind of thing, house training this dog. So what I do, I get a treat, and then I take it outside. And when it does what it's supposed to do outside, I give it a treat. Now, what does it do? It runs to the door, looks at me, because it wants to go do its thing, and it's there. So shaping that behavior, you know, is, is very simple. And if we look at animal trainers all over the world, they're not using the whip, you know, they're not taking away privilege denying food. They're using positive reinforcement. Mm-hmm. It's the most powerful tool we've ever had to shape animal or human behavior that's there. Mm-hmm. We are we are reward sensitive individuals. We like praise. We like people to acknowledge us. We mm-hmm. like to feel accepted, to feel loved, to feel like we belong, to have affection. Uh, to have things that that we enjoy and, and and fun activities, and will I could see the cycle that could be created by a home that parents are just exhausted, they're uh, overwhelmed, they're they're seeing all this impulsivity or lack of impulse control, they're seeing um, defiance, they're seeing these behavioral issues take place, and the last thing they want to do is be positive in that, yeah, and so yeah. you see that. That how it's so easy to get into sure. that negative cycle. Undiagnosed and untreated ADHD tends to lead to ODD. So mm-hmm. ODD is oppositional defiant disorder, and it's mm-hmm. a child that's argumentative that's there, mm-hmm. starts to be manipulative, maybe lying uh, and, and things, but particularly has emotional dysregulation as mm-hmm. a part of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so if we treat the ADHD, the ODD usually tends to go away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And the other thing we see is we see children that develop depression. We always think of depression as a disorder of adults, but a lot of kids that with oppositional defiant behaviors, probably 30 to 40 percent of them, if you look at them subclinically, they're depressed. It's there. Um, and that's when they get into self-harm behaviors of cutting or isolating themselves, avoidant behaviors, self-stimulatory behaviors and things like that. Right. But uh, so I always think we look closely for depression in children as well. Mm-hmm. So, Will, uh, you think about uh, in, a, in a local church setting, um, maybe there's a family that um, their child is maybe hasn't been diagnosed yet with ADHD um, and they're really struggling and, and maybe they're embarrassed because they're mm-hmm. in children's ministry and their kids are sure. always the ones that are, yeah. you know, yep. cutting their hair or yep. coloring on the yep. the wall or, you know, hitting the kid or, or yep. whatever that might be. How does a community create um, understanding and safety so like, for instance, if, if that maybe is not my experience, how do I come alongside and care for and have sensitivity to and love a family well that's experiencing that in a yeah. community setting? You know, it's interesting when, when my child was, was very young, you know, like everyone else, we kind of set up front in the auditorium in, in church. And when he was like six, seven years, he could care less about what was going on in the service. And at times we disrupt you and you get the little looks from the little ladies in church and so forth. And, and uh, I was a deacon in the church, you know, and time the elders came and said, uh, do, do you have control of, of your of your son in there, you know? And I had to kind of educate them. They'd never even heard of ADHD mm-hmm. that's there. But once they had an understanding of that, they became so much more supportive in things and, and supportive of him as well. So I, I think 
um, even within any sort of organization, whether it's a school, whether it's a church activity, you're certainly your, your teen leaders and so forth, it's there. For them to have some training understanding can be very helpful. Uh, I think books and materials by Dr. Russell Barkley is a great starting place. He has a book called Taking Charge of ADHD. Um, he has one, uh, I think, like um, 10 Things Every Parent Should Know About Their ADHD Child. Um, but I think he has a wonderful YouTube videos and lectures about ADHD. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think just you, you have to, I mean, the same way we want to educate our leaders about childhood diabetes that's there and how children's behavior can change or what we need to look for uh, if there's low blood sugars or, or high blood sugars and so forth. We want to do the same thing with ADHD. Mm-hmm. And we do that for all for working with autistic children, with Down's children, uh, with children with low intellectual functioning. But sometimes with a child with ADHD, we, we feel like it's just, well, they're just not trying hard enough. They, right. you know, they don't really want to behave. Yeah. You know, they're just yeah. disruptive. You know, yeah. it's almost like they're the bad seed or something. Well, they become the identified patient yeah. in every yeah. situation, whether it's school or church or, the you know, mm-hmm. in the family. Like, we, they then become yeah. labeled the problem. Yeah, yeah. Thank God so for helpful. grace. Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> that is so helpful. It's not about our, our merits, yeah, you know. We, so we we all are sinners and, and we fall right. short in right. things, right. but uh, God's grace is sufficient. Right. Right. Things. And, uh, so well, let's talk a little bit as we're coming to a close here. Um, a couple of things. Uh, one, if people or parents are listening to this podcast and their, their kids have not been tested for ADD uh, or ADHD. Talk about what you do in the buyer psychological yeah, yeah. group. Uh, I've been doing this a long time. I'm trying to slow my life down a little bit right now. Okay. So, um, you know, I stay booked up months ahead and so forth and trying to limit, you know, um, for my own health and, and well-being to limit my practice and things. But mm-hmm. generally, if, if a parent were to call and they have a child having difficulty we usually schedule an hour and a half, two hours and come in. We'll go ahead and gather the parent and teacher observational forms. Uh, we'll do a very detailed clinical history on the child. Uh, we'll, we'll look for screen for those comorbidities or co-occurring disorders that's there. We'll interview the child. We'll interview the parents. Um, you know, and then uh, after, and sometimes do cognitive measures. We may look at reading comprehension, particularly for those with inattentive type ADD, it looks like. Uh, so we may do some educational or intellectual testing with that. In some cases, we'll even do some kind of pre-personality or clinical scales to look at certain kinds of things that's there. So once we pull all this information together, we write it up in a report. And then with that, we have a diagnostic impression and recommendations for treatment, what we need to be doing to kind of get them on the right right path. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so glad that you are providing that for so many years to our community. And, and that's a that's a very very helpful. I still thing. love what I do. I just yeah. don't want to do as much of right. it. Right. Unfortunately, we need more people yeah. in the area yeah. to, you know, <laughs> go go get that degree in order right. to do the testing right. and things right. like that. There's right. a, a, we're sort of a dying. We're all dying off. It seems right. like. In right. Our, right. In our, What's the degree? Uh, well, typically your- you need to have a private PhD in clinical psychology. That's there. There's like myself. I'm a senior psychological examiner, so we do testing. Um, but, um, you know, without those, either of those, you really can't do any of the kind of formal testing. You can, I mean, LCSWs and, and LPCs can certainly form some diagnosis that's there. Sometimes their evaluations may have some gaps or some things that they, they can't assess for. They're, they're not going to do IQ testing, for example. 
certain things. But uh, so I th- in, in my impression, to make sure you get it right, you probably need someone with background in clinical psych to really do that. That's but right. other people can certainly do a lot of screening. And then if they feel like there may be something area they need, they need to look at, they can refer for that and things. But mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit, just to shift totally away from, from this topic, but I wanted you to talk a little bit about and give – um, maybe give a, a little bit of a platform to you just recently wrote a book i did yeah um i was i was been blessed that i, I married into a family uh, my wife is 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 uh, was uh, in odell um she had a sister diane odell many people in west tennessee knew who had polio at age three and then uh, basically was confined to a lung much iron lung much of her life up until her death at age 61 so 58 years in iron lung so uh, remarkable family. I just I could talk to you all day about you know their their love for others and and their and self sacrificing and so forth that's there. But um, Diane passed away in two thousand and eight, um, and so I finally decided I wanted to write her life story. So mm-hmm. I kind of you know um, gathered all the history we had from early childhood, and um, she had polio and things at age three, and. Um, so I've written her life story. It's called The Girl in the Iron Lung, the Diane Odell story. Uh, it will be released from Acclaim Press um, probably in uh, early November. We're looking at now. Um, there's pre-sales available now through Amazon, through Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, Acclaim Press. I have my own website. I've worked on it last night a little bit, trying to finish it up. You can purchase books through that. It'll be thegirlinthearonlung.com. Mm-hmm. It's there. And uh, But Diane was a remarkable person, influenced people all over the world, even though she was confined to this this horrible machine, you know, that, that kept her life going and things, but it restricted her. But um, you know, became close friends with a lot of celebrities like Jane Seymour and David Keith and Gary Morris and, and so many others. And the whole Jackson community, we, we don't realize myself what a special place we live in. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, you know, you're just not alone here. People love you and care about you. People you've never even met. I, you know, it's, it's amazing you know, through the healthcare foundation and, and West Tennessee healthcare, all the good that goes on every day. You know, we turn on the news, we hear all the negative things, but there are some great people in this town, loving, caring, Christian, compassionate people. And uh, the Odell's benefited a lot from that. And so I'm really excited about the book. It's it's wow. starting to generate a lot of interest and in things. But What a gift. Um, and I'm sure it was a journey for you to go back and um, re- reorient yourself to her life story. Yeah, I mean, you know, even her parents, you know, they came up out of a generation that, you know, her, you know, her, her dad served in World War II. He was in the 163rd Combat Engineering Group. He built 40 bridges uh, as they chased the Germans across, you know, back across Germany there. They blew up the bridges, and he was one of those guys in the Corps of Engineers who went out there and had to rebuild the bridges. And uh, I remember taking him to, up to Paris Landing one time with his group before he died. And so about 12 of them left, you know, and started hearing the stories of, oh, my goodness. It's like, you know, they blow up a bridge. You got to go out there and rebuild it. And while you're out there, three of your men get shot and killed by snipers, you know. And you come back off, you shell the other side of the river, and you got to go back out there and start all over again and do that. And they built they built first bridge across the Rhine, across the Seine, but Mr. Odell was one of the most remarkable, courageous men I've ever known and loved his family so much. Mm-hmm. I never heard anyone ever say anything bad about him. 
in uh, his 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 wife Geneva, likewise, such a loving, caring person that's wow. there. So their their family was yeah. just. I mean, they lived their faith. Uh, you couldn't walk into the room in their house if there wasn't a Bible there that was worn because. Anytime they had a few moments, they sat down, they studied their Bible, they did their Bible lessons, you know, devotedly every week and, and uh, uh, swapped out going to church. So there's one stay with Diane, but such a remarkable mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. So I'm so mm-hmm. excited to share this mm-hmm. story. Say the website again. Uh, com. Now it's not up and running yet, okay. but it should be in the next few days. Okay. Probably. Okay. There. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, This was so helpful and so informative. Um, Tori, any final words? I just feel smarter being here with (laughs) y'all. Thank you for letting me tag along. I've I've enjoyed this immensely. Thank you so very much. If you have other topics on mental health, I I cover a lot of things. Be glad to come back. We we will definitely have you back on. Thank Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on the Storyform podcast. For more information about Fellowship Bible Church in Jackson, you can visit us at fellowshipjackson.com. Join us next time as we enter into the story of others together.